You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please join me now in your Bibles to Psalm 106. Please stand with me as we receive God's Word uh, for our sermon here. This is uh, Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him, turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them along the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. 
Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection into their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held him captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let me see. As our nation celebrates the Thanksgiving holiday this week, we as Christians remember today the importance of being thankful to God. Psalm 106 reminds us of this. It starts out with that very call. It starts out very much sounding like a psalm of thanksgiving. But then you may have noticed what it quickly turns into. It quickly turns into a, 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 a national confession of sin. It's the vast bulk of this psalm, the content, is a national confession of sin. It's a rare chance to think about those two things as they relate to each other. This call for thanksgiving and this confession of sin, particularly what we're going to see, really, it's contrasting the call to thankfulness. Surely what's contrasting here, as we'll see, is the evil of ingratitude. The evil of ingratitude. That's what we're going to see as we look and, and, and realize that's what's being highlighted here in this psalm. That's sort of to tell you ahead of time where we're going to go with this. Well, let's begin then by looking at the opening verses and see how they explicitly call for this. Call for God's people to give thanks. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You've heard that before, right? That's a, not the first time, not the only place in the Bible where that specific line comes. It's a, an important line for God's people. We're commanded there, it says, to give thanks to God, specifically for his steadfast love. And because we've talked about this phrase before, you might remember, this is that Hebrew word, hased, hased. And I like to point it out because it's such a rich word. By giving you the Hebrew, it gives me a chance to talk about the richness of this word. Some Bible translations translate it as mercy, some as loving kindness, some here steadfast love. This is a word in the Hebrew that describes God's covenant loyalty, how he shows blessing to his people to be faithful to the covenant to them. Even when they're unfaithful, he's faithful, he's kind to his covenant people, blesses them, he cares for them. When we hear love, steadfast love, we might hear in English and think like something you feel, 
But this word, steadfast love, has said, it's got more of an emphasis on action. What has God done to show his love toward his people, to show his kindness toward his people? What has God done to show his mercy to his people, his loyalty to his people? So Psalm 106 causes us to think of all that God's done in good for his people and in response to thank him. Now, when verse 1 says we're to give thanks, the idea in the language here is that we're supposed to be specific. The word of give thanks in the Hebrew is literally about giving voice in praise to what he's done. Giving voice in praise, it, it requires us to think and remember. To remember and recognize. What has God done for me and for us? So we can acknowledge it, give voice to it in thanksgiving and praise. The idea then is, of course, that those things that we that we are thankful for, we keep in our hearts and our minds. That we continue to have a heart of appreciation, a heart of gratitude for what he's done for us in the past. It's like you don't write a thank you card. Send it off and think, now I don't need to be thankful or grateful anymore, right? So we see this idea in verse 2 as well. Talks about uttering the mighty deeds of the Lord. Uttering the mighty deeds. To utter them is to acknowledge them verbally, to speak them. And verse 2 then goes on and asks in rhetorical fashion, who can so utter the mighty deeds? In other words, as I mentioned in the prayer, right, we, we fall short in this. We fall short in giving God all the thanksgiving uh, that he truly does deserve. But just because we won't do it perfectly doesn't mean we ought not to try to do what we can to give voice to our thanksgivings, to identify and acknowledge those things God has done. Even though we realize we can say more, let's not therefore not say anything. Now, if you'd like an example of what this looks like, right? These opening verses say, give thanks to God utter his deeds. If you want an example of what that looks like, you don't get it in Psalm 106. You get it in Psalm 105. That's why I had to sing Psalm 105. Summary of it. Psalm 105, if you just sort of scan over it, you'll see it's doing what Psalm 106 says to do. Go through the list of the things God's done for you and acknowledge it and be thankful for it. Psalm 105 is a great history lesson of God's hased, of God's steadfast, loving kindness that he's shown to his people over the years. It's a wonderful example of what it looks like to, to give voice, to, to thank God for those sorts of things he's done for his people. Well, verses 3 through 5 then turn to speak more broadly. Verses 3 through 5, sort of bigger picture, more broad picture of how blessed God's people are, how glad God's people are as they follow him. But I can't help think of those verses in light of what just came before it, the idea of thanksgiving. So when I hear verses 3 through 5 speak more broadly, I still think, especially in terms of thanksgiving, living a godly life, living for the Lord, of course involves thanksgiving. Being thankful to God, like the opposite of what Romans 1 said about the Gentiles, right? We, we live a life of gratitude to the Lord. So when I read here verses 3-5 of God's blessings upon his people and the gladness that comes from godly living, 
I, I think apply that specific to the idea of thanksgiving. A thankful life in general is a blessed and glad life. Again, I'm speaking in general terms here, but as God's people, a thankful life in a general sense is a blessed and glad life. And of course, those things go, you know, there's a sort of reciprocal idea there. We thank God for his blessings, and he blesses us in our thanksgiving. Right? Those things go hand in hand. How glad it is to know the Lord and to thank the Lord. But then we come to verse 6. And this is where the psalm dramatically changes tone. Verse 6, the psalmist says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. When he says we, he's talking about the current generation. When he says our fathers, of course, he has in mind the people, the forefathers who brought the point, the previous generations. Notice he doesn't focus on the current generation's sins yet, but he does bring them back at the end of the psalm. But he starts off by saying, we and our forefathers have sinned. And what he's then going to do is give a rather extended history lesson where he identifies eight examples of their sin in the past. Think of how this contrasts Psalm 106, which, or sorry, Psalm 105, which goes through a bunch of examples of things to thank God for. This gives a bunch of examples of God's people sinning, and as we'll see, really their ingratitude. So these eight examples span the history of Israel from the Exodus through the wilderness wandering into the time of the conquest of Canaan and into the time of the judges and even beyond. So there's a, a big span of Israel's history with eight different examples given of their sin. So before he goes and talks about the sin of their own generation again, which I'll mention again at the end, he really focuses the content on these historic examples. So again, you can think of contrasting this with Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is what we should be doing. Uh, Psalm 106 is an expression of the things that we shouldn't have done, right? Uh, They're they sort of uh, reverse history lesson. Uh, God's history lesson of what God did great in our lives is Psalm 105. Psalm 106 is a reverse history lesson of how even though God's been so faithful through the centuries, God's people have unfortunately, sadly, been so unfaithful through those same centuries. Well, God through history has done so many things that the people should thank him for, Time and again, God's people fail to thank him, fail to acknowledge him, fail to recognize him for what he's done. And results that results in the people finding themselves not blessed, not glad, but rather humbled and chastened. So Psalm 106, our psalm today, highlights what happens when we don't remember and give thanks to God for the sorts of things that's Psalm 105 highlighted. That's why I want us to be thinking about these two together. Let's briefly walk through the historic eight of them. Just briefly touch on each of these eight historic sins. The first historic sin the psalm confesses, that's verse 7. It remembers the Exodus, when people got to the Red Sea, when the Israelites got to the Red Sea and they saw the Egyptians were in pursuit 
And what did they do? The Israelites began to grumble. They were afraid they would die. They lamented they ever left Egypt. Verse 7 calls it rebellion against God. It connects that with them not remembering all the mighty plagues God had already brought upon Egypt. If God had done all those mighty things to get them out of Egypt, why would they think God would now let them just die at the Red Sea? Indeed, God graciously showed them his power by parting the Red Sea to save them, Exodus 14. The second historic sin, the song confesses, is in verse 14. There he remembers how the people grumbled in the wilderness over not having meat to eat. But they did not remember how God had just saved them supernaturally with the parting of the Red Sea. Would it have been too difficult for the God who just parted a Red Sea to send them something to eat? But no, it says they put God to the test. They didn't just humbly ask God in prayer, please provide our daily bread. They grumble against God, put him to the test. And God does actually send them quail to eat. But he also afflicts him with a plague as a chastisement, Numbers 11. The third historic sin the psalm confesses is in verse 16. That refers to number 16. That's when Korah and others opposed the leadership of Moses and Aaron in that time of the wilderness wandering. Think about it. God had, had so far used Moses and Aaron to clearly represent God, to clearly lead the people with God's power to bring them out of Egypt and do all these amazing things for them. And yet, Korah and these others, they, they, they were jealous. They coveted Moses and Aaron's position. They didn't have gratitude for all that Moses and Aaron had done for them, let alone the God who had used them. So God had the ground open up and swallow Korah and his house to their deaths. The fourth historic sin the psalm confesses is in verse 19. That refers to that infamous golden calf incident. That's, of course, from Exodus 32. That's when the people begin to grumble. Notice the theme there. Uh, they begin to grumble that Moses was up on that Mount Sinai for too long. He was up there, remember, getting the Ten Commandments. And, of course, the Second Commandment specifically says God does not want to be worshipped by an idol or an image. And yet it's at that same moment they're down there, Aaron makes them that golden calf. And if you remember the text, it's often forgotten. Aaron actually says that that calf is the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. So he identifies the golden calf with the God who brought them out of Egypt. In other words, it really is a first commandment violation, sorry, a second commandment violation, not a first commandment violation. It's not that he has another God, it's that this one God will worship him through the golden calf. And yet, despite Aaron identifying the golden calf as representing God, verse 20 says it didn't really represent God. It replaces God with the image of an ox, stealing God's glory. It's like crediting the exodus to the golden calf instead of God. I wanted to pause for a moment and make a, I think, a timely application, maybe a reminder uh, from this sin as we approach the Christmas season. The Bible repeatedly says we shouldn't worship God via images. I'm even to make them, as the Second Commandment gives us in two parts. And so my timely application during the Christmas season is that 
This is, of course, this upcoming season when many well-intentioned Protestants and a whole bunch of Roman Catholics try to honor God through various images and statues of Jesus. And I don't doubt their motives are good, but this is a problem that God's people have had down through the ages is wanting to make images of God, and God doesn't want to be made images of. And he says it repeatedly. In fact, Moses, I remember, uh, one of the passages is where Moses says, Remember at Sinai, you saw no image of God, therefore don't make images of God. And yet it's this time where uh, so many images, whether it be, you know, um, things are in front of lawns or postage stamps or cards or things of that sort, you can find all sorts of images of, uh, of Jesus. But Jesus is gone. And so you ought not to make images of Jesus. Now, someone might reply, and I've heard this often, but God did give us a picture, did give us an image of himself at the incarnation. In other words, that's what we celebrate Christmas. So therefore, in other words, is it fitting to make images of Jesus? And I appreciate the thought there, but let me sort of respond. It is true that if Jesus were here in person, in the flesh, He's God in the flesh, and we should worship him, right, if he's here. But he's not physically here right now. And there's no way anyone can even know at this time what he even looked like. And one of the problems when anyone tries to have an artistic rendering of Jesus, think about this little thing I don't think we think about very much, any artistic rendering of Jesus inherently adds something to the biblical revelation of Jesus. Because to take the description as God's word gives us and to preach it is at least the authorized way of explaining what he's given us. But when you paint something or craft something, you inherently add something to the revelation. We know we wouldn't feel right about adding to the written revelation. Let's not fall into the same trouble with images of Jesus. They inherently add something to scripture. Now I might even, again, thinking specifically of Christmas, though this application would apply year-round, of course, uh, but someone might say, I can't celebrate Christmas very well if I don't have images of Jesus. Let me just humbly suggest you could actually celebrate Christmas best without them. What do I mean? Well, think about what Christmas celebrates. Christmas celebrates the first advent of Jesus. In other words, the first time we got to see Jesus. Right? That's what you want to be able to do, right? To see Jesus. God appeared to man in Jesus so people could actually see him. When we celebrate the first advent of Christmas, the first advent of Christ, we inherently are celebrating in advance. We're looking forward to the second advent. What's the second advent? The return of Christ. Guess what we get to do at the return of Christ? We get to see Jesus. We get to see Jesus. That's when the Bible says we'll go from from, from faith to sight, we get to see Jesus face to face. So I would argue, actually, from a Christmas standpoint, it's in line with that sort of Christmas expectation. They have to wait until the return of Christ to see Jesus. And just to run my, my Christmas analogy a little bit further, thank you for bearing with me. Uh, think about Christmas. You have to wait until Christmas to open up your presents to see what's in them, right? Well, we have to wait until the, the second Christmas, the, the, the second coming of Christ, to see Jesus. So I hope that's something for you to consider. Now, I, I recognize 
Well, this idea of not making images of Jesus is a position of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and other denominations. I recognize it's not the position of, of every Protestant Christian. Uh, and if you're not there yet, I understand. But I would encourage you to be thoughtful of others in this way, you know, in terms of particularly context of church functions, uh, something to be considered uh, for brothers uh, who rightly hold this very dear. You know, I, I don't know if you've had this experience. Um, it's it's easy, very subtle, uh, maybe when you just see it here or there. But I've had times where, like, I've walked into like a a Roman Catholic church, and you're just bombarded with this stuff, and then you realize where this ends up, and it really is on uh, various degrees of, of idolatry. So I encourage you to think about that. Humbly encourage you to think about that. And and yes. Let's return then uh, to our passage here. Uh, the fifth historic sin here is in verses 24 and 25. After the Exodus, Israel sent spies into the Promised Land to spy out the land. And they came back in great fear of the giants in the land and the strong military fortifications that caused them, what did they do? They humbled. They were afraid they would die, Numbers 14. They didn't have faith that God would fulfill his promise to give them the land. God chastened them by making them wander for 40 years in the wilderness until their children grew up who believed God would give them the victory. The sixth historic sin here is verse 28. When the men of Israel during the wilderness wandering, they engaged in sexual immorality with the Midianite women at Pure which of course was wrong and bad, even if there was just a period at the end, right? That was it. But then it goes on, and those Midianite women got them to worship Baal, even worse. Here, Israel shows no appreciation for God when they so easily turn after a false god. God brought a plague upon them for such spiritual infidelity. The seventh historic sin mentioned here is in verse 32. That's when Israel again grumbled against God in the wilderness when they found themselves without water. God did graciously give them water nonetheless. There was at Meribah, that location. But their grumbling was described by Moses as re rebellion. And this time, sadly, their wickedness there actually contributes in some way to Moses' failure. This is not to excuse Moses' sin. Yeah. Oh, people, you know, but, but it was a contributing factor. I think it's fair to note. The psalm notes it. That's remember Moses, that's when he struck the rock instead of talking to the rock like God had told him to. And, and it says here in this psalm that they're grumbling. So angered Moses that it contributed to his sin. Again, that's not to excuse it. I can tell you, I, I, I would imagine if I was Moses, I, I could imagine how did you last this long, Moses? Um, but it also mentions how Moses spoke rashly. If you look back at the text, when he does strike the rock, he also sort of implies that he's the one giving them water. And I think that's probably what's in mind there, that Moses took credit for it by the way he described it. The eighth historic sin is recorded in verse 34. It remembers how when the people of Israel finally conquered the Promised Land, remember the time of the conquest under Joshua, uh, when they finally conquered the Promised Land, they were not faithful to finish the job, to complete 
the job. God had made it very clear, gave them very specific instructions about what they were to conquer and the peoples that they were to conquer, and they only did part of the job and left a number of people groups not conquered. Even though they were supposed to be, God's hand of judgment upon those wicked people. But they did not perform that faithfully. The other benefit, if they had followed that instruction, not only would they be serving God as his hand of judgment against those wicked people, but then they wouldn't have those wicked people in the land when they lived there, living right next door, to try to turn them away from God. And that's what's highlighted here. What happens when Israel doesn't fully destroy them, God told them to destroy them. They didn't fully destroy them. One of the things they did instead was marry them. They married them and mixed with them, and next thing you know, they're introducing Israel to their false gods with their idols and turning them after false pagan worship, even abominable child sacrifices. And the psalm actually says that that worship was so evil that when they were worshiping these false gods with their idols, they actually worshiping demons. Remember, Paul quoted that in 1 Corinthians against idolatry in his day as well. The result of all of this intermingling with the pagan peoples resulted in the dynamic that we find in verses 40 through 45. And if you read this and thought this sounds like a summary of the book of Judges, I think you read it correctly. God would allow another nation to rise up and sub attack and subjugate Israel until Israel cried out in repentance to God. God would then raise up salvation in one form or another. During that period of Judges, it was typically done through a judge. And that was especially the case during that time of Judges. But if you think about it, as you move forward in the time of the monarchy among Israel, they had kings. This dynamic still has some echo in that situation, too. One good king, it goes well. One bad king, it's bad. And they have trouble from the nation subjecting them. And of course, this dynamic continued all the way through the monarchy until it resulted in Israel being conquered by Assyria and Babylon and being exiled to those nations. So this dynamic, you know, full steam ahead, ends up with God's people scattered through the nations under God's judgment in exile. Well, in our, those are the eight sins. We took you through the eight sins. What I want to do now, our third and final point, is to connect the dots here. I think you've begun to see the dots being connected. I sort of pointed you to connecting the dots. But let's, let's connect the dots here. See how this brings out an important theme of forgetting versus remembering. Forgetting versus remembering. Why did Israel commit these eight sins? One way to answer that is they were forgetting. They were forgetting. Verse 7. They did not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love for them. They didn't remember. Steadfast love, you see that word there? Sound familiar? That's the word hased. It's actually in the plural. This is not hased, this is hased. Yeah, it's not really how it's in Hebrew, but. It's, they, were, they didn't remember his many steadfast loves. In other words, all the things he did in his ascent for them over the years. They didn't remember them. Verse 13 says they forgot God's works. Verse 21, they forgot God their Savior who had done great things for them. Think about how bad it is 
to forget all the things God, that someone has done for you. If someone does nice things for you, you forget it. What do we call that? It's called ingratitude. This, this is why I said this song is really a song of ingratitude, right? When you forget, 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 you aren't having gratitude for what they've done for you. If God has done so many amazing things for you, and you keep forgetting that he's done all those things for you, that is certainly ungrateful of you. And that's what we see in this song. Examples, just a few of them here. Go back to the, the Red Sea thing, right? If you had remembered what God did with the ten plagues when you escaped from Egypt, you wouldn't have grumbled when they got to the Red Sea. You would have remembered, you would have known God already brought you out mightily, and he's going to keep being with you here. You could have trusted God instead of complaining. See how that grumbling is the what results when you forget. When you're not grateful, you end up grumbling. The same can be said in the wilderness when they find themselves without meat or water. Right? They, they could remember God's past provisions and call out to him for help and prayer. Or like with Moses and Aaron and their leadership. If they had remembered everything that Moses and Aaron had done for them, they surely wouldn't have been ungrateful and said, we don't want you as our leader anymore. Especially when they realized how God had chosen Moses and Aaron, and God was the one doing mighty things through Moses and Aaron. Similarly, if they remembered how much the one true God had done for them, they would never have gone after idols or other gods, committing spiritual adultery, forsaking the God who had done so much for them, for false gods. And so our song here shows us what happens when you're so ungrateful so as to forget all that God has done for you. And that's how this psalm ties together the two topics today, the topic that it began with, a call to be thankful, with this whole confession of sin. The psalm shows us what it's like to be a people that are not thankful. Our psalm highlights a history of ingratitude. If instead of being thankful to God, you forget what he's done for you, what ends up happening? You end up doubting God. You end up disobeying God. You end up grumbling. You end up turning away from him toward other religions. This is what you see here, and it does not have a good outcome. Think about the trajectory of where that should lead you. When you forget God, when you grumble, turn away, go after false gods, where it should end you up. But in Israel's case, their evil ingratitude did not result in their complete destruction. Why not? Because while they kept forgetting, God kept remembering. Verse 45 concludes the section on their sin and God's judgments that we put upon them by saying that God nonetheless remembered his covenant and relented because of his steadfast love. Through the generations, God would preserve a remnant saved by grace. He would not forget his promised covenant of grace that he swore by his own name, even if many in Israel did forget. <laughs> that brings us then to the application for us today. 
what God had done in the past for these wayward Israelites. Look at what the psalm asks God to do in their day. So before I get to the application for us, I'm actually going to apply it first to the, the psalm as the psalmist wrote it. But that's where we're going to get our own application from too. But so, so the psalm, the psalmist, remembers all this past, remembers what God had done in the past for these wayward Israelites, and then asks that God would do the same for them in their day. What he has in mind, of course, is that despite their waywardness, God remembered his covenant and forgave them and restored them. And that's what the psalmist says, please do now in our day. See, see, verse 4, remember, it said it's not just the, our forefathers, it said, it's we too in our day. We've sinned. And he comes back to that then at the end of verse 47. Look at verse 47. The psalmist says, save us, the current generation. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So the psalm takes this historic confession of sin and says in their day, they too have sinned. In their day, they too apparently have ended up scattered among the nations, subjugated by the nations. They too have ended up dispersed among God, uh, away from uh, where God had brought them. They too were facing a similar chastisement. And it says, may you have mercy. May you remember again your covenant of grace. Will you remember and save us? Save us in our day. Gather them from all the nations and set them again in a place of gladness and blessing as the people of God. That's their prayer request. Notice what the psalm says would happen then if, if, if God did that. But then they'd be able to thank God. But they'd be able to thank God if he would do this in their day. So the psalm really comes full circle. If God would restore them out of their own folly, of their past ingratitude, if he would restore them and gather them back up as a people, then they would be able to respond with thanksgiving like they should have done before. So this really is a psalm of saying thanksgiving, you see. The big picture. Because again, think of the this prayer request that comes at the end. When does it get answered? When does this prayer request get answered? I tell you, it's become to be answered when Jesus was sent in this world. When you sing Psalm 47, that's the real beginning of the answer to that request. You see how it comes to give us application? Save us, we pray, scattered from the nations, bring us back into a place of your people. Jesus was sent to answer that prayer request. That salvation arrived in Jesus, and ever since then, God has been gathering all his elect people together out of all the nations to set them into a place of blessing and gratitude. And what joy we find out that includes not only elect Jews, but elect from the Gentiles as well. Even us. So again, if this finds its fulfillment even now in Christ, 
as God still gathering in Christ people unto himself, if, if it finds its fulfillment yet in our day, what's the application? What's the response? I think it's pretty obvious then. What does the psalmist say that they could do if God would save them like this? That they could thank God. That's our response then. That's our application. Let us remember. Let us give voice in thanksgiving. Let us remember what God has done when troubles come so we, we can trust God instead of grumbling. Let us remember what God has done so we can look to live in God's good ways instead of going after the ways of the world. Remember, His ways are best. Let us remember that we should never turn to idols to these false gods, but look to worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, then let us conclude with uh, verse 48. If you have your Bibles with me, um, let's pretend that I, I gave you a responsive reading here. And when it says that all the people say, I'd like you to finish, we'll do that then responsively. Psalm 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise, praise, praise the Lord. Let's try one more time. <laughs> we want to do the praise the Lord as well. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise, praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do give voice to our thanksgiving and praise today, even as we acknowledge how too often we've not shown you the gratitude you deserve, whether it's failing to say thank you, or simply doubting you, or complaining. Father, we pray and ask that you would work within us a spirit of faith and obedience that trusts you, because we know you have our good in mind, because we remember all you've done in the past, and are confident of all that you do in our life in the future. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.